Good morning. It is a great honor and, and privilege to come to you this morning and to bring God's Word. We are in Psalm 131 this morning, and I didn't choose this psalm because it's easy, though it's only three verses, though that would probably be a wise move being a, an, an intern, choose the easiest passage, but as as a, a famous theologian, Charles Spurgeon, once said, Psalm 131, yes, it's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible, but it takes the longest to learn. What we have here is a psalm that says, Oh Lord, I don't have a noisy soul. There's not noise in my soul. I have a quiet soul. So Christian, I want to ask you this morning, do you have a quiet soul? Have you come here this morning wrecked and ravaged? By the week, have you brought your anxieties here? The psalm is for you. It's a short psalm, but good things can come in small packages. Let's pray. O Lord, my God, O Lord, our God, early we seek you. And you have been so good to us to come and meet us here this morning. So, Lord, I, I, I beg you solely on the promises of Christ that that you be here with us this morning. That you speak to us through your word. That you comfort our hearts. Oh Lord, and that you can do, that you do that work that only you can do. That you comfort those who are not in comfort, oh Lord. And that you, that you restore the backslider. And that you save the lost. Lord, not by my might, oh Lord, but by, but by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, I, earlier this summer, I was scrolling through Facebook, through Instagram, and I came across this awesome picture. It was of a, 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 a beautiful beach called Cannon Beach in, in North Oregon. And I thought, you know what? At the end of the summer, I need a little vacation. I'm going to need it. So, when I fly to Las Vegas, I got my family, I'm going to take a nice little road trip up the coast of Oregon and land there at Oregon Beach. Oh, you should see the picture. It is gorgeous. The, the, the shoreline is it's, it's outlined by, by cliffs. The beaches are, the, the shoreline is wide. There, there, are, there are actually little, little rocks, big rocks in, in the ocean. Some are too far to reach. Others are far enough for you to just swim out and touch. Oh, it's beautiful. And I picture myself there, sitting there in the morning in my lawn, in my lawn chair, but my, my, my beach chair. And I saw myself there and I was going to have my coffee in my hand. I was going to later on that evening or that afternoon have a, have a nice mojito in my hand. And then later on that night, I was going to sit there and watch the sunset and I was going to watch the stars fill the sky. And I thought, Yes, I need that. That is going to actually give me rest. That is going to still my quiet heart. I need that. Well, after reading Psalm 131, I decided not to take the trip. <laughs> not that vacations are bad. But I knew what my heart was after. My heart was not after peace with God. My heart was after an idol. And I knew if I went there, I was not going to find that peace. I knew if I went there, I was going to carry the same old Jerry 
there. I was not going to find peace. You see, I have a noisy soul. A soul that, that is craving and yearning for, for this satisfaction. A satisfaction that a vacation cannot feel. A satisfaction that, that nothing in this earth can give. And I knew if I went there, I would be miserable in my own oasis. It's not what we want, is it? We want a vacation. We want to get away. We want to, we want to go to a place that is going to give us peace. We want things in this life that are going to give us our final rest because our hearts yearn for that. Our hearts yearn for that. Well, Christian, if you're here this morning with that anxious heart, with that noisy soul, this psalm is for you. This psalm is about that. It's about, as the psalmist will put it, quietness. He says, oh, Lord, I've, I've quieted my soul. The word that we would use for that, that, that equates to it, would be contentment. This psalm is all about being content. Are you content this morning? Really, interrogate your heart. Ask yourself the tough question, am I content? Am I satisfied in God alone? Or do I feel that God has actually held something good back from me? Well, this morning we, we, get, the, we get the honor and the privilege to, to chime in, call it holy eavesdropping, into the prayer of a saint, that being David, the prayer of a saint, who has said, Oh Lord, I have learned the secret to contentment. Imagine that. We get to listen to the prayer of a man who says, I have found that secret. And David says, I have found that. He wants us to find it this morning. So the first question I want to ask is, what is contentment? What is that? We use the word quite often. And oftentimes we say it's being satisfied with what God gives. That's a, that is a, that's, that's a good definition. Well, let me offer this definition. It, I, and I found this by, by, through a guy named Marshall Siegel. He says, contentment is this, learning to love the life you have with God, even if it is the life you never wanted. Let me read that again. Learning to love the life you have with God, even if it is the life you never wanted. How's that definition? Let's work with it. Because I believe that's exactly what David says he has learned here. And who better, who better to, to, to tell us what it's like to be content. I mean, you know the story of David, don't you? David, a young boy, probably in his teens, is, is ordained and promised to be the next king of Israel. It's fine and dandy, right? But the next decade plus years are riddled with this confusing narrative. Lord, you've ordained me king and yet my life is full of strife. What's going on here, God? I'm running and I'm hiding in caves. I should be sitting on a throne. But David learned that he can be content even there in a cave. Even there in a cave. He says, my heart is quiet and my heart is calm. 
And the metaphor that he uses is that of a, a weaned child. That's the metaphor that he uses here, a, a weaned child, a child who has moved from uh, uh, the supply and demand stage of life where I'm going to complain, I'm going to cry, I'm going to throw a tantrum anytime and every time I want something. You, you mothers in here know exactly what I'm talking about. And you fathers too. The child who only will, who cries and cries and cries because it wants, it wants, and it wants, and it wants. But the weaned child, no, the weaned child is that child who sits there and knows mom and dad are going to take care of me. I'm happy with them just being present. David says, that is me. That is me. But you get the sense from this text that that this is not a natural condition. David didn't pop into the world being content. And none of us in here pop into the world being content. As a matter of fact, you mothers, I, I, I guarantee you can get an amen when I say this. You didn't have to teach your child to complain. You didn't have to teach your child to cry and to want. That's natural. What's unnatural is for it to wait and be satisfied. And like us, it's unnatural for us to, to wait upon God and to be satisfied in God and Him alone. It's quite unnatural for us. It's something we have to learn. And David says again, I've learned it. I've learned it. Well, let's look at this more. He says, let's look at verse 2. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. What is what is the soul? What is, what is that? I'm not, scientifically we don't know what a soul is. It's not, not a tangible material thing. But oftentimes we, we talk about the soul as, as though it is merely something that's inside of me as, as opposed to outside of myself, the inward part of myself. That's, that's partly true. I don't think that's what David is saying here. I think David is saying this. The soul is who I am. It's you, it's me. At the core of my being, the totality of my being, that is who I am. Yes, we have become very good at hiding who we really are. We put on our smiles, we put on our, our fancy clothes, and we parade around our fancy objects. But let me ask you a question. When it is just you, yourself, and I, it's just you sitting there, and you're going through a trial and tribulation by yourself, where does your mind run to? Does it run to thanksgiving and praise or complaint? It's who you are. And David says, who I am, O God, is a quiet soul. Who I am, O Lord, is, 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 a, is a calm soul, a leveled soul. That's what the soul is. And he says, it is this part in him. It is this part that he has quieted. Also notice here the human effort. What does he say? He says, I have quieted my soul. I have quieted my soul. Now, we are good Reformed Christians, and we know that we can do nothing apart from the grace of God. We know uh, 
Philippians 2, where, where Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his purpose. We so quickly go to the second half, but we forget to lean into the first half. It is a command. It is an imperative to work out your salvation. There's work to do, Christian. This is, this is not something that comes easy. It is a difficult work. Contentment is a difficult, difficult work, a difficult endeavor to achieve. And David says, I, I, Lord, yes, I have done it. I don't think David would have, I don't think David would have disagreed with our reform statement on we can do nothing apart from Christ and Christ alone. I don't think he would have disagreed with that, but I, what I think he's saying is like, Christian, there is a work to do. And you must strive, you must strive to quiet your soul. You must strive to quiet your soul. Let's dive a little deeper. There are, there are three areas I want us to see here where David says, I've had victory in. I've had victory in these three areas. The heart, the eyes, and the, the last one, let's say, false preoccupation. False preoccupation. Let's look again. Verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud. Again, the heart. I think the heart here is synonymous with the soul. It's who he is. And he says his heart is not proud. That's an interesting kind of starting point there. My heart is not proud. What is pride? What is pride? Pride is that me first attitude. That, that me first attitude. That, that attitude that says, I want this, I'm going to have it at all cost. That's the, that's, that is the attitude here, David says, that he doesn't have. He doesn't have this, this me first attitude. Let me give you an illustration of what pride can often look like. Several years ago, I took a trip to, to Montana for the 4th of July and with, with some friends. And we were there on a beautiful campsite. And every morning, I would wake up, I would sit in my, my little chair, and I would read my Bible. And right in front of me, there was this, this, this little hill. It, lo- it was a big hill, but it was nonetheless a, a hill. It wasn't a majestic, huge mountain. And on the seemingly the top of that hill, there was a, a nice little tree that looked very shady and the grass looked very green. And I wanted to go up there. I wanted to read my Bible up there. How silly is that? I wanted to go up there and read my Bible. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do that. It looks fun. So that's what I do. I get to the bottom of that cliff, and that cliff that looked very reason that, that mountain, should I say, that looked reasonably um, uh, unsteep. It was actually very steep. And a, a trip that I thought was only going to take a few minutes took well over an hour. And I get to the top to realize that tree was not where I thought it was. It was actually somewhere else. I get to the top and realize, oh, if I actually got there, that I would, I would slide to my death. You see, my heart is like that. It sees what it wants and it thinks, oh, that's where happiness is. And I want it. I'm going to have it at all costs. Just to find out, oh, it wasn't there. Disorienting. 
Very disorienting. It wasn't there. And I exhausted all this effort to get there, and it wasn't there. It's like pursuing money. Yes, I want. I want to have money. I want to be able to sustain myself, my wife, and my kids. I want to live a comfortable life. That's, that's good. But, but money always has with it a trap, doesn't it? You can never really have enough. There's always more to have. That's why Paul warns us and tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If we pursue money as though that is, that is, the, that is the ends in and of itself, we will find that contentment is going to be very elusive. It's going to be very elusive. So David says, my heart is not that, O Lord. It's not prideful. He's had victory in the heart. Secondly, he's had victory in the eyes. Nor are my eyes haughty, or another translation, nor are my eyes raised too high. Lift it up. Lift it up. What is, what is, what is that? What is that talking about? Arrogance. Arrogance. Do you know if your eyes are raised too high, you, you actually will look down on other people? You actually look down on others. You see, the, the prideful heart is the arrogant heart. The prideful heart is dependent upon the other, to be better than the other, to, com- to compete with the other. It's that, it's that heart that says, Lord, I've been faithful to you, haven't I? I've read my Bible, I've gone to church, I've served faithfully. Why does this person to my left or this person to my right, why, why, why do they seem to be more blessed? Oh Lord, why have you given them the promotion and not me? Or let's get a little more petty for us millennials. Why does he or she get more Instagram likes than me? I know them. If everyone knew how they live, they wouldn't click the heart. Yes, we, it's funny, we laugh. But these, these are things we would never confess in small group, would we? We would never say, oh, yes, I, I really want to have all the likes. We would never say that. But our hearts scream it. That's how petty they can be. And David says, I've had victory here. I've had victory here. Also, the eyes give, give, gives the, off the idea of, of, of ambition. Now, ambition is not bad. Ambition is not bad. But if you make the end goal of your ambition the thing itself, you tur- you've turned a good thing into a dangerous thing. And you won't find contentment there. You won't find contentment in your ambition. If the end goal is this material thing that you want. Or, or let's, let's say you, you just want to be more known, more recognized. 
The goal is I want people to recognize me more, not in a, not in the sense I want to be the next pop star, but I want my friends to recognize me more. I want to be loved more. I want my boss to see my work. I've done so many good things and no one's praised me. But remember the working illustration here. What is it? It's the weaned child. The weaned child is content and satisfied with the presence of the parent being there. Christian, contentment won't be there. Contentment can only be found in the presence of your heavenly Father. Again, this is hard work. And David says, not only is his heart not proud, he's had victory in the heart, he's had victory in the eyes. He's also here had victory in the the false preoccupations. What does he say here in verse in the latter half of verse 3, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult, or another translation says, too wonderful for me. Now, what is that all about? I don't involve myself with things too difficult or too wonderful for me. Things too, too out of reach. Is David saying we shouldn't read high theology? Is David saying we shouldn't endeavor to to learn big things and involve ourselves with, with great thoughts. No, no, I don't think David is saying that. I don't think David is saying that. Just read your Bible and you will see there are great thoughts that will stretch your mind and grow your heart. Surely, if God gave us these great things, we should involve ourselves with them. No. I think, I think David is saying this. If God hasn't given me the answer... I don't have a right to it. If God hasn't given me the answer, I don't have a right to it. It's God's prerogative, not mine. It's often found in questions such as, Lord, why do I have cancer? Oh, Lord, why is my, why is my child lost? They've been raised in a good Christian home. Or, oh Lord, for those of you in here who remember 9-11, why did that happen, oh Lord? Don't you have the power to stop all madness? Don't you have that power? Or it can, it can, it can come home and, and say this, Lord, isn't there a better way? Couldn't there be a better way to use my life? Couldn't there be? Couldn't there be, Lord? Yes. If you just give me, if you would just give me my heart's desire, then I would be content, and then all those that my life affects will be content also. Christian, these are our unanswerable questions. And David says, I don't involve myself with these things because I can't answer them. This part of the psalm reminds me of, of, of the latter half of, of the, just the story of Job. You know the story of Job. Job, a wealthy man, loses everything. Loses kids. Loses prosperity. His wife tells him to curse the God who blesses him. To curse him. And then he sits in the middle of of some friends who are great theologians, but poor practitioners. They have the right theology, but they're applying it to the wrong situation. And, and, And Job can't take it. 
Job knows, oh, I'm, I've done nothing to deserve this. God, I want an answer. Give me the answer that I desire. He wants a confrontation with God. He's going to call God to the docks. Put God on the stand. And God says, okay. You want to call me to the docks? Brace yourself. Brace yourself. And then God begins asking Job all these questions that Job cannot answer. Were you there, Job, when I created the heavens and the earth? Were you there, Job, when I cast the stars out and named them? Were you there, Job, when I did all these things in the beginning? What does Job do? He covers his mouth. A sign of humiliation. A sign that he has been put in his place. It wasn't Job's prerogative to know why God was allowing it. The question possibly Job should have asked, and the question that we should be asking is not, why, O oh Lord, are you allowing this to happen to me? But Lord, how can I be faithful to you in the midst of this? How can I be faithful to you in the midst of this? Because you do realize this contentment is, is often, is, is really tested whenever trials come. It's easy to be content on that Oregon beach. That's easy. It's easy to sit there and to drink my coffee and to drink mojito and, and be satisfied and content. But that could just be a clear sign that I have my idol. Not that I actually have peace with God or that my heart is restful. I just have my idol and I'm massaging it. That's all I'm doing. No contentment is found whenever providence, God's providence, God's good hand rubs raw against the grain of your expectations. Let me say a word to, the, to, the, to those who are my age and a little younger. Or those who are younger. The temptation for us in our youth is this. I can do all things through me because I have fresh legs and a healthy heart. But let me ask you a question. What if before you aged, before you hit your autumn years, you lost those legs or you lost that health and you had to live dependent? Your life altered. Would you be content? Would you be satisfied? Or would your life be undone? I have to ask myself that question every day. If I were to wake up with cancer and these, these healthy lungs and these healthy bones were to war against me, and I could no longer make plans on my own, would I be content? Or would I be undone? Is God enough? Or do I need all these other things? Is God enough? And to those of you who are my senior, you may say, it's too late for me. It's too late for me to be, to be content. Well, at that point, we may be talking about the, the quality of your contentment, but you have, there, is, there is enough grace to sustain you through these golden years. There's enough. 
quiet your soul. David says again, I have, I've had victory in my heart. I've had victory in my eyes. I've had victory in these false preoccupations. He's like a weaned child. The, 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 the weaned child is, the, David is basically saying, Lord, I'm, I'm childlike. I'm childlike. I have become less so that you can become more. What if that's a secret to contentment? What if contentment is not found in, in addition, but found in actually subtraction? What if it's that? What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2 whenever, he, whenever he's encouraging his congregation to, to, to love one another and to encourage one another? He says, he, he points to the highest theology possible, the incarnation. And he says, be like that. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count it a robbery or a thing to be grasped to, to become a servant. He, he humbled himself. Actually, he emptied himself by becoming a man. He emptied himself. And was not Jesus the happiest person to ever walk this planet? He emptied himself. He wasn't me-centered. He was other-centered. I think that there is one of the secrets to contentment. Don't be a hoarder. Let go. There may be some ambitions you need to let die. There may be some goals you need to put on pause. There may be that. Be like that wean child. And then David really wants us here to, to have this type of contentment. He ends, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. I think that's one of our problems is that we have too many hopes. Place our hopes in too many things. And David is saying, no, have this singular devotion to God and him alone. Place your hope in him, O Christian, and you can have this type of contentment. I want to I I I quickly bring this to a close by... Ending with this story. It's by, it's, it's a true story. A man named Charles Pennington. He was an African-American slave back in the early 1800s. And this slave, this young kid one day, Charles, saw his mother and father get beat by the slave master. And Charles knew I can't do this anymore. So he planned his escape. So the very next day, he began his six-day journey, 165 miles from, from Maryland all the way to Pennsylvania. You can imagine all the, all the things he must have gone through to get there. Because he was heading that way because he heard of this, of this man named William Wright. William Wright was a Quaker. And news was spreading about that these Quakers were abolitionists. 
Abolitionists meaning that they wanted to, they believed that African Americans should be freed from slavery, and they were seeking to abolish slavery. And he heard that this one individual was actually very fond of African Americans and, and would help him become free. But he couldn't. He, he couldn't check the facts. <laughs> he was placing his hopes in the news that he heard. He was placing his hopes all on this. So he finally made it. He finally made it to the door. And you can imagine the, the tension and the nerves. The moment I knock on this door, this man has my life and my freedom in his hands. I could have heard lies. The news could have been false. But he was hungry. He was dirty. He was tired. And he was extremely needy, desperate. So he, he takes up courage. He knocks on the door. And William Wright answers the door. He opens the door, and Charles, in the best way he could, told him the situation. And William paused him and said, listen to this. Well, come in, then, and take thy breakfast. And get warm, and we will talk about it. Thee must be cold without a coat. How life-changing could that have been? How life-changing could that have been for this young man who was, who was riddled by all types of, of emotional strain? All types of emotional strain. Putting his life in the hands of, of a man he wasn't sure was able to save him, who, who actually would save him. To hear these words come from him, don't, do you think... Do you think at that moment Charles asked, oh, actually, I want, I want more than that. Give me more than that. Or was he satisfied in the fact that this man saved his life? He opened his arms wide to him and saved his life. Well, Jesus does the same to us. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tells us to come to the table and to, and to eat, to take his food and to eat so that you can be satisfied for the heart, your heart, if it is discontent, can find true contentment. It's, his arms are open even now. Yes, they're open. Christian, when you woke up this morning, let me ask you a question. Was God disappointed in you? Or did he delight in you? Through Jesus Christ, a Christian, he delights in you. Why is that not enough? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you, O Lord, that you hold our lives in your hands, and that you are a good God, and that you tenderly take care of us, and that you've given us, O oh Lord, a high priest, a, a, the God-man who stands before us and intercedes for us even now. Lord, I pray that you give us these, the, the victory in our hearts, the victory in our eyes, the victory in our souls, and Lord, cause us to be those wean children. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.